Well, how many of you are glad you're in good hands today? Aren't you grateful for that? Praise the Lord. Thank you, Miss Becky Cook. And uh, I'm so glad. You know, there are times we don't know what's going on in the world and what's going to happen and become of things. But let me tell you, the hands of God, He's orchestrating history. History is His story. And He's bringing history to its intended conclusion. And uh, we all have, we're all destined to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And so bless His name. Well, if you've got your copy of God's Word, I want you to take it and turn with me to the fifth chapter of the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 5. Uh, while you're turning there, um, all of us would probably be amazed if we tried to come up with all of the expressions that we use in everyday conversation that are expressions that unbeknownst to us, come from the pages of the English Bible. There are a lot of uh, various uh, expressions, idioms that we use in passing that come right from the pages of the Bible. Now, you know what an idiom is, all right? Um, you know, if you're traveling, if you're in a foreign context, you're using a translator, idioms don't really translate well into other languages, I learned that the hard way a couple years ago when I was in Vietnam, uh, just speaking to a group, and I used the expression, it was raining, I mean, it had been pouring, and I used the expression, it's raining cats and dogs. And the translator looked at me and said, you know, not really an expression that translates. They would have thought I'd lost my mind had he translated that. You know what that means. It means it's pouring outside, okay? But it just didn't necessarily compute well, there are a lot of expressions like that that we use that come right from the Bible. Uh, what about this expression? I was at my wit's end. Have any of you ever used that expression? If you have kids, I know you've used that expression a time or two. Uh, but that expression comes from Psalm 107 in the English translation of the Scriptures. Or the expression, the blind leading the blind. It comes from Matthew chapter 15. Uh, as Jesus said, that the Pharisees were blind guides, the blind leading the, the blind. Or the expression, to fall by the wayside. Uh, that's an expression that comes from the parable of the sower. As the sower sows seed, some of the seed fell by the wayside. Well, in Daniel chapter 5, from this chapter, there's another expression that is used in everyday language conversation. And the expression from this chapter is this. The writing on the wall. Have you ever heard that expression before? So-and-so saw the handwriting on the wall. Their days were numbered. Their number had been called. Well, it comes right from this story here in Daniel chapter 5 that we're going to look at. Uh, Daniel chapter 5 tells us the story of yet another king in Babylon. Uh, not Nebuchadnezzar, this is perhaps 20 years after the time of Nebuchadnezzar, but it's the story of King Belshazzar, who holds a great feast for the nobility of Babylon, and there in the midst of his drunken feast, there's a mysterious hand that appears, and the finger from this hand uh, begins to write a message of judgment on the wall in the throne room of Belshazzar. And it's a message of judgment. And he sees the handwriting on the wall. 
So let's read the story beginning in uh, Daniel chapter 5, verse number 1. Notice that the Bible says, uh, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. And Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, his concubines might drink from them. And then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. And then the king's color changed. His thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. And the king called loudly to bring in the enchanters and the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. And all the king's wise men, they came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed. His lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. And now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show me the interpretation of the matter. But I've heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be third ruler in the kingdom. And then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, 
The Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness, glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken away from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind. His mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. The vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, wives and concubines have drunk wine from them. And you've praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. This is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tikal, and Parson. And this is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tikal, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. And then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck. A proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being 62 years old. I want to speak from this subject this morning, the writing on the wall. This story in Daniel chapter 5, really it's a part of a trilogy of stories in chapters 4, 5, and 6. And they're stories about different kings. You know, Daniel, uh, the 12 chapters of Daniel span about 70 years of Daniel's life as he's living out the remainder of his days as an exile in Babylon. In chapter 4, we're told the story about King Nebuchadnezzar and how God brought him from a place of pride to humility. In chapter 6, we're told about something that happens in the life of King Darius. But here in chapter 5, the king in question, his name is Belshazzar. And really within this trilogy of stories, in these chapters, we have a description of these kings, uh, what they had accomplished, who they were, what their problems consisted of, as well as their response to the activity of God in their lives. It's interesting to me that in Nebuchadnezzar's case, in Belshazzar's case, as we'll later see in Darius's case, God was very active uh, in speaking uh, into their lives, revealing to these Gentile kings the truth that there is only one true God, 
And he is a sovereign God. He's the one who raises up kings and brings kings low. He's the one who raises up nations and brings nations down. And yet what we learn from these chapters is that when God speaks, it's time for us to obey. Uh, When God speaks, it's time for us to repent. When we're given an opportunity to turn from our sin, to confess our sin, and to cast ourselves upon the mercy and the grace of God, we need to seize the opportunity while the opportunity is to be seized. There is no time for procrastination when it comes to salvation, when it comes to repentance. And we learn the sobering message from Daniel chapter 5 that our sin is ever exposed to the God of heaven and our response to his word is of utmost importance. And God brings judgment on the one who refuses to repent and find refuge in him. So a few things from this chapter that I want to point out. Notice with me, number one, that it all begins with the feast of a pagan king. This fifth chapter opens up, the context is given to us, Uh, It's the feast of Belshazzar. King Belshazzar has called for a celebration. It's a celebration that involves a thousand of his lords, a thousand of the nobles, uh, the aristocracy of the kingdom. Now, in between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, history actually tells us that there was a succession of kings in rapid fire. It was about six and a half years between uh, the death of King Nebuchadnezzar and then the, uh, the reign of a king by the name of Nabonidus. Nebuchadnezzar's own son only reigns for about two years before he's killed by his brother-in-law who usurps the throne. That brother-in-law only reigns for four years before there's a plot that involves him being assassinated. There's a ruler that reigns for two months before Nabonidus finally comes to the throne. And Nabonidus, most historians say, uh, was perhaps married to the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. And Nabonidus has a son by the name of Belshazzar. Now for a lot of time, uh, a long time, skeptics would come to Daniel chapter 5 and in their attempt to try to disprove the truthfulness of Scripture, they would say, well, there's really no historical evidence that there ever was a King Belshazzar in Babylon. That is until about 1854, whenever the spade of the archaeologist overturned uh, some artifacts in that part of the world that did, in fact, speak of a King Belshazzar, who was a co-regent with his father, Nabonidus. Nabonidus spent most of his time away from the city of Babylon, perhaps fighting the Medes and the Persians who were a growing threat at the time. Seems to be a guy who didn't like the administrative affairs of running an empire, and so he left that to his son, Belshazzar, who ruled over the city of Babylon. He's the king that's being referred to here in this text. In fact, the word son and father, uh, these are words in Aramaic that can be translated predecessor uh, or successor. So the idea is Nebuchadnezzar could very well have been the grandfather of this Belshazzar, and yet there is no real Aramaic word uh, or Chaldean word translated as grandfather. He's simply referred to as a son of Nebuchadnezzar in the text. Which, by the way, this makes really good sense whenever you consider the fact that the king promises to make Daniel the third in the kingdom. 
If he can interpret the writing on the wall, uh, he'll be elevated to a status of being third in the kingdom. What does that mean? Who were the, who were the two at the top? Nabonidus, Belshazzar, and now Daniel, who gets promoted by this Belshazzar. But the chapter begins with the drunken feast that Belshazzar holds for the nobility. Now, in my mind's eye, I can envision all of the limousines rolling up to the palace. It's a red carpet affair. All the aristocracy, the lords of Babylon, they're walking the red carpet. The bulbs from the cameras are flashing. The paparazzi has gathered outside the palace. Uh, The bottles of wine are being distributed. It's a major deal in the city. It's a big party involving the who's who of Babylon. So you'll notice a few things here in the first four verses. You'll notice the king's influence. He's hosting this party, and it's evident that everyone in his, his throne room, they're under the influence of alcohol. They're under the influence of the wine that's flowing. That inevitably leads to the king's irreverence. Because after tasting the wine, he does the unthinkable. The Bible says that he commands that the vessels from the temple in Jerusalem be brought into his party and used as utensils for he and his guests. What exactly were these utensils and why were they so important? Well, back in chapter 1, Uh, When Jerusalem fell, the Bible says that Nebuchadnezzar carried off the Jews into captivity. Uh, He ransacked the temple in Jerusalem, and he carried away the utensils that were used in the worship of God there in the temple. Nebuchadnezzar brought those back to Babylon and placed them in the temple of his God, the God Marduk. In his mind, it was his way of demonstrating how the gods of Babylon were superior to the God of Israel. And yet we know that God in his sovereignty is merely orchestrating all of these events. In fact, the book of Daniel begins in that way. It was God who gave his people into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. It was God who allowed those utensils from the temple to be carried away uh, to Babylon. So evidently, for a period of time, they'd been kept there in the storehouse in Babylon. But in the midst of his drunkenness, Belshazzar says, bring me those utensils and let's let's have a good time at God's expense. They use the goblets to get drunk and the platter to to pass around all of their delights and all of that. These were the same utensils prescribed in the law of Moses, held most sacred by the Jews. And so this is an act of sacrilege, desecration of the highest order as Belshazzar has the instruments that were devoted to the worship of God brought into his chamber, used for his own wicked purposes. And then this leads to the king's insolence because with total disregard for the God of heaven praised by Nebuchadnezzar at the end of chapter 4, Belshazzar and his entourage begin to drink their wine, and the Bible says they praise the gods of gold and silver. Now, here's a guy who hasn't learned a thing from history. This is a guy who has no spiritual foundation whatsoever in his life, and yet he's a guy who ought to have known better. He disregards the God who upholds his very life while giving the best that he had to give to the gods of silver and gold. 
Which, by the way, we do the same thing apart from the intervention of God and His grace in our lives. You say, what are you talking about? Well, we take what God gives us. Everything that we have is a gift of God. The very breath that we have is a gift of God. The fact that your heart is beating in your chest is a gift from God. We take what God gives us rather than it becoming offered back up in worship to him with his glory in mind, we take what he gives and we spend it on ourselves to advance our own agendas. Do you know that every single human being who's alive is a worshiper? You say, that's not true, preacher. I know an atheist. Uh, no, let me tell you, there's no such thing as an atheist, truly, because everybody believes in something. Now, someone may say, well, I don't believe in organized religion. I don't believe in the God of the Bible. But let me tell you, that person is a worshiper no matter what. Man cannot help but worship because that's what we've been designed to do. Something or someone is at the center of your life. And that's true for every person who's alive today. The question is, is the God of heaven... Is Christ at the center of your life? Apart from God's gracious intervention in your life, apart from salvation, he won't be. So Belshazzar's holding this feast, and I can't help but just see the emptiness with which he is partying. In fact, the writer here, I think by focusing our attention on this elaborate feast as the sole event worth mentioning in Belshazzar's life, in a, in a subtle way, it merely highlights the emptiness of his life. I mean, think about the difference between this guy and his predecessor. Nebuchadnezzar was someone who had built an empire. The only thing that's said about Belshazzar in the record of history is that he hosted a party. Nebuchadnezzar was a, a builder of empires, uh, and yet God humbled him here you have a guy who's done nothing but hold a party. Does he not think that God can humble him also? He's going to learn that there is indeed a God in heaven. So there's this feast. It's a feast of Belshazzar, the feast of the pagan king. Now, notice secondly, the fingers of a mysterious hand. The king doesn't have long to enjoy his party because the Bible says a mysterious visitor crashes the party. In the midst of their revelry, uh, notice that verse 5 tells us that the king saw something. What can only be described as a heavenly hand, it appeared out of nowhere and began to write on the plaster of the wall. And you'll notice the Bible says that it was opposite the lampstand there in the throne room, which meant light was cast on the wall in such a way that it was illuminated like a whiteboard. It was something that was observable. It was something that everyone could see for themselves. I read something interesting that when the archaeologists were unearthing the massive palace area of ancient Babylon, uh, they discovered that one of the walls of what would have been the throne room of the Babylonian kings, one of the walls opposite where the throne would have been was coated in white gypsum. Which, by the way, Archaeology doesn't disprove the Bible. Archaeology only proves that the Bible is the truth. So this gypsum wall, this plastered wall, would have been an ideal place for a message to be written. Much in the same way that the finger of God um, inscribed the law of God on stone tablets for Moses, here's a heavenly hand 
that suddenly appears in the midst of the palace room and, 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 and begins to write this message on the wall. And it's a message of judgment, though they don't know it at the time. The king sees it, and then notice the king begins to shake as soon as he realizes what's happening. Verse 6 says that his color changed. His thoughts began to alarm him. Literally, the blood drains from his face. The icy uh, grip of fear begins to travel up his spine. Have you ever experienced something similar to that where you were, you were fine one minute, then something happened that just totally terrified you, and you felt the blood begin to drain from your head, and you began to feel the fear begin to travel up your spine? The Bible says his limbs gave way, his knees knocked together. The Aramaic language is interesting here because it literally suggests that he lost control of his bodily functions. So here's a guy who goes from being drunk one minute to being sober the next. Probably the quickest act of sobriety that's ever happened in history. But then notice who he summons. He wants to know what's going on. So he does the only thing that he knew to do. He calls for the wise men of Babylon. He asks them to offer an explanation. That's a common theme that we've already seen at this point throughout the book of Daniel. When something goes wrong, when something can't be explained, what does the king do? He sends for his advisors. He sends for the astrologers. The king sends for um, the, 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 the wise men of Babylon, but they have no wisdom. Over and over again, the text emphasizes how Babylon is completely void of wisdom. It has absolutely nothing to offer those who are struggling with the issues of life. By the way, that's always the case with the world. The world understands that there are problems, but the world doesn't understand the nature of those problems. The world misdiagnoses humanity's problems, so the world is powerless when it comes to offering any solutions to the world's problems. Because the world wants to talk about symptoms, but God's Word gets straight to the heart and says the issue is the human heart. The issue in humanity is humanity's lostness, alienation from God, sin. And so all of the divisive issues that we could talk about and spend all of our time talking about in the church today, that core issue, it goes beneath the surface to the heart of humanity. But the wisdom of Babylon doesn't see that. It's foolish wisdom. Well, just when things seem like they couldn't get any worse when it seems like there's no one who could offer any solutions to the handwriting on the wall, thank God that the queen comes in. This perhaps is the wife of Nabonidus, the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar, the mother of Belshazzar, who says, listen, don't be so alarmed. There's a man in the kingdom. Not this bunch over here. Not these guys over here who are clueless when it comes to offering you any help. But there's a man in the kingdom. Way back when, in the days of your father, in the days of your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, there was a man in whom was a different spirit. A man who was different than anybody else. A man who was gifted with understanding and wisdom. Wisdom from another world. 
And because of an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, solve problems, Daniel was able to help out Nebuchadnezzar. Not Babylon's wise men, not the fools that were surrounded, uh, that, that Belshazzar had surrounded himself with, but there's a man of God. At this point, Daniel is an older man. More than 20 years, perhaps, have transpired between the events of chapter 4 and chapter 5. There's been a lot of change in the kingdom. Kings have come, kings have gone. It's been a chaotic time politically. It's a chaotic time spiritually because now there's a new administration that doesn't understand the lessons that Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had come to learn and understand. The God of heaven that Nebuchadnezzar praises in verse 37 of the fourth chapter is the God of heaven who's forgotten by Belshazzar in the fifth chapter. But thank God there's a man in the kingdom who has not changed. Thank God there's a man in the kingdom who still knows the God of heaven, who still is obedient to the God of heaven, who's faithfully serving the God of heaven, no matter what had been going on in the culture around him. Wow. So he's a different guy, this Daniel. And so what does the king do? The king says, bring him in. So notice third here in the text, the faithfulness of a godly servant. The faithfulness of a godly servant. The Bible says in verse 13 that Daniel was brought in before the king. And I can imagine with the smell of wine on his breath, Belshazzar perhaps, he's, he's out of his mind because of his drunkenness. Yet he knows that something serious is happening. As he's seen the handwriting on the wall, hear him as he says to Daniel, you're that guy. You're that Daniel, one of the exiles from Judah who my father brought in. I've heard of you. I mean, can't you just see this guy in your mind's eye? I mean, just drunk. I've heard of you. Probably leaning all in close to Daniel. And why is it everybody with bad breath always has a secret to tell? I don't know why that is. But. You're that guy. I've heard of you. There's an excellent spirit in you. I'll give you a promotion. I'll, I'll load you down with gold. I'll make you the third ruler of the kingdom. If you can tell me what that writing on the wall means. My advisors have no advice. My wise men have no wisdom. Finally, in desperation, the king turns to God's man. Why is it that we always turn to the quick fix rather than just dealing honestly with ourselves and with the issues of life? We are notorious for wanting a quick fix to all of our problems. But folks, there are no quick fixes to our problems. There's only truth and repentance in the way of God. There are no quick fixes to the, solution, to the problems uh, of, of society today. I want to God that the church be revived and restored to such a place of, of power that, that the, the world around us realizes that it's bankrupt when it comes to answers. But maybe someone could say, you know what? Let's ask the church. What about the pulpits of America? Far too much time has passed where evangelicalism has been marked by scandal and hypocrisy 
to such a degree that the church has been reduced to a laughing stock in the eyes of the world. Which is why scripture says, let judgment begin at the house of God. Would to God that he would raise up some faithful men who will preach the truth no matter of the external results. Some faithful servants like Daniel who are faithfully serving God in spite of the change, in spite of the chaos, in spite of all that's happening, they're just staying the course because listen, they're grounded in the truth. They've got their eyes fixed on the God of heaven. That's why their lives aren't falling apart when the world around them is falling apart. When our lives are falling apart in the church, it's because we've taken our eyes off of the God of heaven. It's easy for us to get too comfortable in this world. And so in that way, thank God whenever he he ruffles our feathers. Thank God whenever he stirs up the nest. Puts us in a place of discomfort because it's then that he's about to do something great in our lives. That's Daniel. So listen to him as he responds to, Nebu- uh, to uh, Belshazzar in verse 17. How does he respond? Well, he begins by refusing the gifts that the king wants to lavish upon him. He says, let your gifts be for yourself. Give your rewards to someone else. I mean, here's a guy, he's, he's a guy who can't be bought. He's not in the business of interpretation for profit. He's a not-for-profit prophet. He's not about the money. He's not about what he can get. Alistair Begg says something so profound of this. He says, think about how much of our lives are often driven by external stimuli. How much of our commitment to Christ is based upon feeling or fortune. It's only the result of preoccupation with ourselves. He says, Daniel remains unchanged in the midst of it all because he's a man who has concern for God and his glory. And in this way, he challenges us today. Think about all that Daniel had been through. As a teenager, he's kidnapped from his family. He had been uprooted from his heritage. He had been placed in a strange and threatening place. If ever there was a guy who had a right to be discouraged, it was Daniel. If ever there was a right of anyone who, if anybody ever had a right to want to lay down and die, it's Daniel. But rather, the truth that had been ingrained in his life held him firm throughout his days in Babylon as he kept his eyes fixed upon heaven. Daniel realizes that he has purpose. He knows the truth, and now he has an opportunity to be able to speak truth into the situation that King Belshazzar and his subjects find themselves in. You know, Jesus told his followers, he said, y'all are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. And yet, if the salt loses its saltiness, how in the world is the world ever going to be salty? If the light is hid under a basket, how, how would it ever illuminate the darkness? That's what Jesus is saying. He's not saying that we believers are going to transform the cultures in which Christ places us. Sometimes that happens, but sometimes that doesn't happen. But we're to shine the light. We're to be salty nonetheless. 
We don't have a right to retreat when times get tough. Go to 2 Timothy for just a second. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. I, I want to I show you something from 2 Timothy. Paul's writing to a young preacher. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 1, listen to this. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. In the last days, perilous times will come for God's people. It will be difficult for God's people who are walking with God. As the culture around them is going in one direction, they're going in the opposite direction, and the result of that, it's going to be very difficult for the people of God. It doesn't necessarily say it's going to be difficult for the people of the world. It says it's going to be difficult for the people of God. Perilous times, difficult times are going to come. And then notice how those days are marked by those who will be lovers of themselves. Narcissistic people. People who are only concerned for themselves, no one else. What I want, what I think, how this impacts me. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. In the last days, there's going to be a collapse of the family. That's what Paul is saying here. People will be ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. They have an outward form of religion, but they have no power. It's religious expression without true religious possession. And he's saying, this is what we have to look forward to in the last days. And yet all the while, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. So the closer we get to that final day, the harder and harder it's going to be for God's people. Think about how difficult it is for Daniel. Here Daniel is. He's got a message of judgment that he's got to interpret and apply to the king of the land, but he's done it over and over again, and he's going to do it once more, even though he's one man swimming against a culture that's heading in the opposite direction. <laughs> it's the same ministry that's been given to the church. He then reviews the king's history in verses 18 through 21. He takes the king down a trip down memory lane. It says, you remember in the days of your predecessor, your father, Nebuchadnezzar, what God did in his life. When he thought he was bigger than God, God took him down a notch or two. God demonstrated in his life that God is sovereign, that there is a king in heaven who rules over the affairs of men. And Nebuchadnezzar had to learn that lesson the hard way. And now Daniel is saying, Belshazzar, you haven't learned from history. You ever heard this expression? Those who forget history are destined to repeat its mistakes. Those who forget the lessons of history are destined to repeat the mistakes of history. Huh. Wow. Then he just gets to the issue here. He says, listen, uh, I've got to rebuke you, king, for your idolatry. Verse 22, you've not humbled your heart 
even though you knew all of this. You've lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You've taken the vessels, the sacred vessels of his house. You've called them to be brought in before you and you and your lords and your entourage have drunk wine from them and you've praised the gods of gold and silver. Dead gods that can't speak, gods that don't breathe, gods that can't save. And yet you've rejected the very one who holds your life in his hands. Now let me tell you, that's what you call moral courage right there. A man who is speaking the truth, who's not about flattery for the sake of personal gain. And you know, the issue is not the instruments or the, the, the vessels from the temple. It's not the vessels themselves, because these were just golden cups and platters. But it's what they represented that was important. It's the fact that they had been separated for the worship of God. And in that way, they were the sacred vessels that God said, don't tamper with. Don't take what belongs to me, what's reserved for me, and monkey with it. And, 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 and use it for your own selfish purposes. And you say, we would never do something like that. Folks, we do it all the time. What about the sacred institution of marriage that we think we can redefine and call whatever we want to? We do with the family whatever we want to. The sanctity of human life. The sanctity of human life. Let me tell you something. I don't think there has ever been a Supreme Court nominee more important than the upcoming nominee that our president has the opportunity to nominate right now, especially with the issue of human life. So what we want to do is uh, humanity wants to take that which is sacred, that which God has said is sacred and holy, and we want, to, we want to redefine it, and we want to reshape it, we want to refashion it into our own image to serve our own selfish and sinful dictates, all while poking the God of heaven in the eye. Don't be surprised when the handwriting is on the wall with the culture that does that. The church is a sacred institution that is not subject to be redefined however we see fit. The gathering of the church on the Lord's day is different than the gathering of sports fans pulling for some team on a field. And for us to want to equate the gathering together of the body of Christ with some other gathering in society shows that we have absolutely no clue when it comes to the holy things of God. Oh. Dare we assume that the sacred vessels are ours to do with whatever we please? Belshazzar is going to have to learn this the hard way. Ultimately, verse 24 through 28, Daniel reveals the message. He interprets the handwriting on the wall. Mine, mine, tikul parson. The words in Aramaic were terms used for measuring quantities, weighing goods on a, a scale. The, the word mine there, it's repeated twice for the sake of emphasis, but it means numbered. Your days are numbered. The days of your kingdom have been numbered by the God of heaven. That's what Daniel is saying here. This is what this means. Tikal, it's a word that means weighed. It's pointing to how Belshazzar had been weighed according to God's holy standard, and he comes up way short. 
Parson or Perez, it's, it's plural form, means divided, and it simply speaks of how the kingdom was about to be divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Now that leads to one final thing here in the text, and it's this. Notice with me the finality of God's judgment. Upon Daniel's interpretation of the handwriting on the wall, Belshazzar does what Daniel told him not to do. He calls for a purple robe to become to, to be given to Daniel. Uh, Daniel's loaded down with gold. Daniel's given a promotion to the third place of, uh, of, of, of rulership in the land. But there's a haunting statement that's made in verse 30 as it says, that very night Belshazzar the king was killed. That very night. Nebuchadnezzar had seven years. Belshazzar didn't have seven hours. Some of you are sitting there thinking, you know what? I've got, I've got time to straighten up. I've got time to repent. I've got time to be saved. I've got time. What if you don't have seven hours? What if before the sun sets today, you draw your final breath and you stand before the God of heaven? Are you prepared? You see, at the same time that Belshazzar and his nobles were feasting, they thought they were tucked away safely there in the fortress city of Babylon. But at the very same time, the Medes and the Persians were infiltrating the city. There's a Greek historian by the name of Herodotus who wrote all about it. And Herodotus said that it was on October 11th, 539 B.C. that Babylon fell. How did it happen? Especially when you consider how fortified the city of Babylon was. I mean, the walls of the city were unlike any other uh, ancient city. They were so tall and so thick that you could drive two chariots. Two chariots could race on top of the city walls. Ever so often, there was, a, there was a fortified tower where a watchman could stand guard and see threats to the city coming from miles around. On top of that, the city had had enough provisions, was so well fortified that if any foreign army tried to lay siege to the city of Babylon, they had enough provisions for at least 20 years. The army that thought it could lay siege to Babylon would starve to death before the inhabitants of the city would. You know the way that Babylon was designed? It was built on the Euphrates River so that the river flowed right through the middle of the city. The massive walls of the city of Babylon went across the river in such a way uh, that the walls were beneath the water level and there were small openings uh, at the bottom of the riverbed so that the water could flow into the city and the river could continue its course. But did you know on the night of October 11th, 539 B.C., the Medes and the Persians took the city of Babylon, but they didn't scale the walls of the city. They didn't lay siege to the city. A few miles upstream, all they did was divert the river. They dammed up the river to where on the very night that Belshazzar and his drunken lords are having a time, what they don't realize is that the water levels of the Euphrates River begins to get lower and lower and lower until finally the water level is so low that Darius the Mede, Cyrus the Great could march their armies into the city of Babylon underneath the walls as the river had been diverted. And the city of Babylon fell without even a shot being fired. 
In fact, Herodotus says it this way. He says, the Babylonians who inhabited the center of the city knew nothing of their capture because it happened to be a festival. They were dancing at the time and enjoying themselves at the time, but Babylon was taken for the very first time. And we say, you know what? America's got the greatest military in the world. We're the greatest nation on earth. There's no way that any foreign power could ever, ever take out our country. Then perhaps we've not learned the lesson of history. The church says, well, we've got this and we've got that and we put all of our pride and all of our, we, we boast of our accomplishments and our possessions all the while we're without divine power and God says, okay, have it your way. Just see how long you can make it without my anointing on your life and your ministry. Or we as individual men and women, we think that, you know what, one day when I get to heaven, I've led a pretty good life. I've been a pretty religious person. My good deeds are going to outweigh my bad deeds when I get to heaven. Surely I'm going to be able to go to heaven. I did this and I did that when I was little and I served here and I did that. Mine, mine, tikal, parson. The words applied to Belshazzar, but they're words that apply to humanity in rebellion against God. They're words that apply to me, but for the grace of God. Numbered, numbered. Your days are numbered. The time is coming when you're going to draw your final breath, and you don't know when that time has come. Tikal, your life is weighed in the balance. Do you think that your good deeds could somehow tip the scales of God's justice? What are we being weighed against? I'll tell you what we're being weighed against. We're being weighed against the holy perfection and the righteousness of God. Who could ever say, I've measured up? I've broken his laws. I've sinned against the God of heaven. I've profaned that which is sacred. Parson. The only thing that's left for a person who dies in such a condition is to be divided, separated from God for all of eternity. As judgment is declared. But you know what? It doesn't have to be that way. Because the goodness of God leads men to repent. It's the grace of God and the patience of God. And the Bible says that God is long-suffering. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But he longs to see people come to know Jesus, his son. You know what? There's only one person who's ever lived who's measured up. And that's Jesus Christ. Only one person in his righteousness has ever measured up to the standard of perfection. And yet Jesus was weighed and divided and nailed to a cross of wood in my place and in your place. So that my sin, my sin was judged at the cross. You know, the thing is, God has to judge sin just by virtue of who he is. He doesn't wince at sin. He doesn't overlook sin. He doesn't sweep it under the rug. Sin always has to be dealt with. As a believer in Jesus Christ, my sin was dealt with at the cross as the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus who died in my place. So that now, through repentance and through faith in Jesus, the righteousness of God is credited to my account. So you've got to have the righteousness of God's Son to get into heaven.
And that righteousness is only found through repenting of your sin and placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Let's stand for prayer this morning. Salvation is not something that you can purchase by your gifts. It's not how much you pay the preacher. God cannot be bribed. Salvation is something that can only be purchased on your behalf and received by you as a gift in faith. And the only sufficient atonement for our sin is the precious blood of Jesus Christ who is offered up on a cross. Now, folks, think about it. Heaven's only lamb suffered outside the gate for a city of unworthy rebels like us. And it's by his sacrifice alone that you and I are accepted by God the Father because Christ is perfect in every way. When his life was weighed in the balance, it was found to be complete, righteous in every way. So like the, the writer of the great song, why should I gain from his reward? I can't find an answer. But this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. Do you know that with all of your heart? If not, then listen, I urge you today, cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ while you have time. Every head bowed, every eye closed. You say, Pastor, I don't even know what to say. I know that I've offended God. I know that my sin deserves judgment. What must I do to be saved? Let me tell you, there's a man in the kingdom. His name is Jesus. Cry out to him. Confess your sin and your need. And perhaps you say, Lord Jesus, I confess my sin and my need for you. Please forgive me. On your merit alone, I believe that you died for me on the cross and that you're risen from the dead. And I confess you as my Savior and my Lord. I place all of my trust in you, Lord Jesus. And my friend, no person who has ever cried that out to God has God turned away. We're going to sing here in just a few moments. If you've asked Christ to be your Savior, you know the Bible says you need to be baptized. Maybe you need to come talk to one of us about baptism. I'll be here at the front as we sing. Some of our other pastors, counselors, let me just ask you to go ahead and move into place if you would. Maybe you need to just come and just make an altar of prayer. Whatever, whatever the reason, you just need to come. You need to pray. You be obedient to the Lord as he leads. Father, have your way and your will in our hearts and lives. For Christ's sake, amen and amen.